This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, this is Christopher Melke, and you are listening to Past Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio's show in medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We are joined today by Dr. Karsten Vilke. Dr. Vilke is an associate professor at Central European University in Budapest at the Departments of History and Medieval Studies and and the Nationalism Studies Program, as well as a member of the Jewish Studies Project. He received his Ph.D. in 1994 from the University of Cologne in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Chris. I wanted um, to start off today's uh, discussion um, with a very general overview of the Jewish situation in the Middle Ages and the early modern period um, for the listeners uh, back home. I hate to ask a question like, what's it like to be Jewish in the Middle Ages? But uh, let's use that as a starting point. What are the sort of, um, what is the situation like uh, at this at this point for the Jewish community? Well, the situation of the Jewish minority in the Middle Ages is a very peculiar one, mm-hmm. a very strange one, uh, because uh, Jews are the only non-Christian others the only non-Christians that are, la- that are allowed to live uh, among uh, the Christian societies, in most of these societies. We have uh, exceptions in Eastern Europe or in Spain, but uh, in, the central parts, uh, in the central parts of Europe there are no Muslims, there are no pagans anymore. And this is quite surprising, because if you go back to the uh, uh, end of the Roman Empire, when uh, Christianity becomes the state religion, all the other cults are uh, prohibited, and uh, there are only the Jews staying among the Christians. So one has to ask, why the Jews? Why are there, why is there this, this tiny minority left? Why was it so important for the Christians to, uh, to maintain them? So we have there different, uh, different answers. One of them is uh, theological. So Christian theologians thought that uh, Jews who also uh, have the uh, Old Testament, the Christian scriptures, with all the prophecies that Christians apply to the Messiah, are uh, important as witnesses for the Christian truth. Mm -hmm. And precisely because they they do not believe in this Christian truth, but have the scriptures, have the prophecies, have uh, uh, everything that speaks about Christ according to the Christians, are uh, a valuable proof in their very existence among the Christians for uh, their religion. Another question Another uh, uh, reason why Jews were tolerated uh, is economic interest. Mm-hmm. Certain uh, forms of long-distance trade in the early mid- Middle Ages could not be done by Christians, especially when the world uh, was split between Christianity and Islam. Jews could move from one side to the other. For mm-hmm. Christians, it was not so easy. I see. Then there is a question of money lending. Christians uh, could not lend uh, money on interest. Jews could. So there was a a twofold, let's say, or manifold motivation of uh, maintaining Jews in a subaltern position as uh, others, as even the ultimate others of uh, Christian society. By sketching out the the, the sort of um, interrelationship between the two, it's a 
It's it, it is a very odd dynamic because on one hand, clearly with with incidents like the breakouts of you know the pogroms of the First Crusade, it's clear that there was a lot of resentment. But it, it's it's sort of a combination of I hate to say pragmatism, but pragmatism and in, in, in resentment that the Jewish community seemed to face by a lot of um, the Christians is 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 that true in your opinion? It's a very ambivalent situation. On the one hand, they bore the theological stigma mm-hmm. and uh, an economic stigma as well. On the other hand, they were needed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, they were, one might say, f- especially for the 12th, uh, uh, 13th uh, century in uh, France, in uh, Germany, they were part of urban culture. They were an important part of, uh, of the cities. They, uh, they took part in economic and social life. And if you look at the Jewish quarters today, there are interesting uh, archaeological excavations, even here in Budapest, Mm -hmm. uh, and you see Jews uh, living very closely to the centers of power, to uh, the centers of the the Christian cities and important places and even in even honored places. So uh, we have to look at the different interests in these societies, also at the different uh, uh, social groups. There is a difference, of course, between the the elites, uh, the clergy, and uh, the populace in their relation uh, towards Jews. But uh, we should not imagine, at at least not for the high Middle Ages, Jews as as being the the perpetual excluded. Mm -hmm, They mm -hmm. were part of urban society, and they were part of, uh, of urban culture as well. Most of the major cities in the Middle Ages had to, almost had to have a, a sort of Jewish quarter or a, a part of the city where there was a um, Jewish set of residences. Is that true as well? All the major cities in Europe had. For me, it's interesting that you bring up the example of, of Budapest because one of the one of the most fascinating items that you can see in the in the Budapest History Museum is this. 14th century throne carpet. It's this beautiful, beautiful silk work with the um, Angevin, this French and Hungarian coats of arms um, intersected with each other in a diamond pattern. And they found it in this stinking mud heap at the bottom of a well um, with a bunch of old leather shoes and a bunch of broken clay tablets, all with Hebrew writing on them. This link between the royal courts and the Jewish community struck me as one that's being very interesting because the way the archaeologists um, reconstructed this story was that this throne carpet had been used possibly for decades. It was a little bit old, and it was either pawned or sold off um, to a Jewish resident who, you know tried selling it and didn't have any success, so threw it out with a bunch of old garbage. Maybe about 10 years ago, they find it when at the bottom of a well when they're doing uh, excavations. It's really quite fascinating. The link between the royal courts and, and, and the Jewish populations is also a very, very funny one. Would you mind elaborating on, on that if you could? Yeah, definitely, because the uh, excavations that have been done here in Buda are in uh, in the very center of town, very close to the present day uh, uh, royal uh, royal palace. The royal palace at the time was at another another corner of the town, but mm-hmm. never mind. It was a it was a central place, and uh, there have been interesting uh, excavations in a lot of in, in several other cities in uh, in Europe, 
At the moment, there are excavations going on in Cologne in the immediate vicinity of the town hall. So uh, uh, the uh, Jewish uh, street uh, sign is directly in front of the town hall. So this was the most central place of, of the town. There have been excavations in, uh, uh, in Vienna and uh, in Regensburg and other places with uh, wonderful discoveries. In Cologne, there are Byzantine jewels that have been discovered. In, uh, in Erfurt, uh, in Germany, there is a horde of uh, wonderful, uh, uh, precious uh, objects, uh, goldsmith uh, objects, uh, just a marvelous uh, golden, golden ring in the Gothic uh, style that has been unearthed there. And one discovered that Jews in the Middle Ages did not wear black if they did not have to. They were quite fashionable people, and they uh, they um, shared the fashions of the time, the Gothic fashions of the time, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, the way of dress and uh, the way of feasting and uh, and dancing and the architecture with their Christian neighbors, and applied it to their own uh, specific uh, Jewish uh, religious contexts. There are representations in. Uh, in Jewish manuscripts showing how people dressed. They dressed in the fashionable way that people in the 13th or 14th century uh, uh, would uh, dress themselves. And uh, if you look at the architecture of the synagogues, mm -hmm. it's uh, the latest style. And, uh, of course, I won't go into the controversy whether it's the Jews who brought the Gothic style to the Danube, ah. but uh, <laughs> they were among the first I see, to I use see. this French style to invite French, uh, uh, French artisans. Uh, to build them synagogues and to build them buildings in uh, the first uh, uh, part of the 13th century in uh, Regensburg and then afterwards in uh, Vienna, Prague and, uh, and here in Buda. So uh, they lived very well with, with, their, uh, with their time at that period. Well, that's, that's good, and I think it's a very important uh, distinction to make. There, there's a lot of really bloody events that tend to get a lot of the attention. There's the the walls of the ghetto in, in, in Venice in the 13th century, but at the same time, I mean, these people are neighbors, and so, I mean, the fact that, you know, they're wearing very similar clothing, adopting similar styles of building, I think that's a very interesting state of affairs, and probably not too surprising, all things considered. Well, we have to distinguish different periods and different environments in the Middle Ages. Oh, fair enough. First of all, the uh, Mediterranean uh, and the North uh, have uh, different different spaces, different uh, ways of life for the Jews. And then there is a decline. There is a marked decline in the late Middle Ages, a pressure uh, upon the Jews that uh, will lead to these uh, to the creation of walled-in uh, districts, the ghettos, uh, as see. they are later called in the 16th century, and uh, that start to be created after the uh, catastrophe of the uh, of the plague of the Black Death I see. in uh, 1348, which uh, to a large extent is a watershed. Are there factors other than other than the plague that leads to this greater restriction? Well, it's a very complex situation mm -hmm. because there is a change uh, to start with uh, in uh, economy, with the Jews being less and less. Uh, Needed with Christian Christian groups performing uh, tasks in, uh, in in trade 
and uh, in finance that before that were the tasks of the Jews. Yeah, fair so enough. that there is a th- there is a harsher competition in the course of time, especially in the fourteenth uh, uh, and uh, and fifteenth century, that slowly drives. Uh, Jews out of the towns, out of biz- business, uh, uh, marginalizes them. Then there is a change in theology. The uh, Christians, uh, with the rise of scholasticism, with the rise of dogmatic uh, self-definition, have another uh, outlook uh, on the Jews. So uh, Jews are no more uh, those uh, fossilized, this, this fossilized community that uh, keeps on believing just in the Old Testament and uh, waiting to do the do the step into the New Testament, into Christianity. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jews are people in the uh, uh, vision of uh, Christian uh, thinkers of the 13th century who adhere to some uh, different religious uh, message, message, a different religious uh, structure enshrined in the Talmud. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a big discovery of the 13th century, that the Jews are not the uh, not seen by Christians as the people of the book of the Bible, I but see. the people of the Talmud. That means a uh, diabolical book in the spirit of the time, and uh, Jews are imagined to be uh, in a much more conscious manner uh, opposed to Christianity than this was thought to be the case before that. So at the same time. There are legends about uh, ritual murder, mm-hmm. about host uh, desecration, and uh, other popular stereotypes linked to Jewish physiognomy, uh, linked uh, to uh, ideas of uh, of filth, also of uh, sexuality, and other topics that stigmatized uh, that stigmatized Jews in a certain way. So we have there a, a bundle of uh, of reasons why Jews are marginalized in the course of time and eventually uh, excluded or uh, expelled from uh, most parts of uh, Western and Central Europe. Scholasticism is also the time when we start getting the, in my understanding, we getting we start getting these debates where. Jews are brought into universities and they have these debates between Jewish and Christian scholars which are always staged in such a way where the Christian theologians always win in in the end. We spent the first segment talking about a very general overview of the Jewish situation in the Middle Ages. Um, I wanted to spend the the rest of their show um, talking a little bit more about um, specifically uh, your research. Part of the fun of you know hosting these shows is to get academics to talk about things that they really specialize in and that they're really, really very passionate about. It was very difficult picking a topic, I must say, because you um, you have a lot of areas of interest in uh, of, of research in Jewish life in the later Middle Ages and early modern period. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the work you've done on rabbis. I leave the floor open to you. Okay, I started to uh, to work on rabbis in uh, Germany in the framework of a research project mm-hmm. which treated the modernization of the rabbinate in the 19th century. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And in this context, uh, I went back to the, to the history of the rabbinate, and uh, I can tell a few words about this. So uh, the main uh, issue with the rabbinate is that it is a, uh, an original Jewish creation. There are no rabbis in other, uh, uh, in other religions, and uh, it is a conception that uh, is very close to uh, the essence, the, the, the essential ideas of uh, the Jewish uh, religion. 
especially the idea that uh, revelation, that revealed law has to be applied, has to be lived, that uh, the divine message has to be uh, realized through a form of uh, uh, activity that uh, the entire individual and uh, social uh, social uh, life is shaped by. So the rabbi is in the middle explaining the law, explaining how it is done. But uh, the history of the rabbinic office is not the history of Judaism. Okay. Rabbis, rabbis arrive in Jewish history quite late. The rabbinic office, as uh, we know it today, as a community, uh, the rabbi is a community official, uh, starts in the late 13th century. Hmm. So, of course, there are rabbis in antiquity, but uh, it is the word that exists already, but uh, not uh, the definition that, uh, that we have today. So a rabbi is, uh, in uh, Aramaic, a master, a teacher. Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. is someone who teaches uh, the Torah, who teaches the Jewish uh, message, the Jewish law, to uh, disciples. So anybody, anybody who teaches is called rabbi by his uh, students. So this does not mean that uh, he has a community office, whatever. And this was the case in antiquity, that rabbis were, uh, were people who shared a certain lifestyle, lifestyle uh, shared by the rabbinic uh, movement, as we call it uh, today, and uh, who uh, passes on the Jewish, uh, the Jewish law. Now, in the, in the, in the Middle Ages, uh, we have for the first time a rabbinate that is uh, defined by its community position. And that is something, that is something quite different. And this is a uh, creation that takes place in different, different places at the time, in, uh, uh, in Germany as well as in Spain, that uh, certain community uh, uh, officials, certain uh, scholars, become uh, the uh, judges of their community, internal uh, Jewish uh, disputes, that uh, they become the interpreters uh, of uh, the Torah in everyday life. And uh, they are also those who... Uh, teach uh, the young people and to uh, perform a number of, uh, uh, of ritual functions in, uh, in community life. And we have another important change, that is the change I was speaking about, that is the modernization of the rabbinate. So you have seen that the, that the rabbi was uh, not at all uh, similar to uh, a priest or to a pastor. The idea was not that uh, he celebrated the synagogue service, the idea was not that uh, he preached, but uh, these became his main functions in uh, the 19th century when uh, Jews, uh, after emancipation or in the course of emancipation, uh, defined their own community in uh, uh, accordance and in parallel to Christian churches. So uh, again, the functions of uh, the rabbi changed completely, and they have changed again with uh, the Internet and with, the, uh, with television and so on uh -huh. in our time, so that you see that uh, the rabbinate is a very original creation uh, of Judaism, but at the same time a very dynamic one, a very mobile and changing one. Lots of evolution going on there. I definitely think of the community position as being sort of a keynote feature, but I honestly did not know that that was a 13th century invention. Why did that start to happen in the 13th century, that the rabbi was seen as the head of the community? Was it because of the knowledge of the Torah? 
So until that time, the community government mm-hmm. and also the uh, judicial authority among Jews uh, was uh, held by elders. Okay. By the most prestigious and by the richest uh, people of the community who uh, had the power inside the community and also had the, had the time normally to, uh, to study the Torah and the Talmud and uh, to pass on its contents. Now, in the 13th century, a number of uh, evolutions happen inside the Jewish community. Uh, first, uh, there, is a, uh, there, there is a social conflict between these elites and uh, between, uh, the, uh, um, be- between the majority of uh, community members, uh, in which the identification of the elites with the uh, spiritual authority, with the judicial authority, was not so self-evident anymore. And when in which, uh, there was a call for new institutions, institutions more representative uh, institutions than these uh, traditional uh, elites. At the same time, there was a spread of a specific uh, scientific uh, approach to the Jewish tradition with the spread of Talmudic study. That started in the in the 12th century in in France, a very specific uh, and uh, very learned approach uh, to the Talmud, Talmudic schools, the endeavor and the uh, the uh, demand to embrace uh, the Talmud in its entirety, to know it, to pass it, to pass it on, to uh, apply it in uh, in everyday life, so uh, that uh, Talmudic study became quite a complex business with its peculiar di- dialectics, which a uh, huge amount of commentary uh, knowledge that had to be known, and this was only mastered, uh, uh, only mastered by a few. So we have a process of uh, professionalization of uh, Jewish uh, scholarship, and very inter- interestingly, this is parallel to what happens in the Christian environment, because there we have the creation of the universities in the 13th century. Mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, what we have until today, the doctors and the MAs and, yes. uh, and all these different uh, degrees and functions. So uh, parallel to this, we have uh, Jews that now call themselves rabbis that also have diplomas. And uh, obviously, uh, it is not just, uh, just a copy of the universities. These Talmudical schools and their Talmudical diplomas and their uh, uh, scholarly elites but there is a parallel development among Jews uh, and uh, Christians. And uh, sometimes we can see that innovations uh, are made in environments uh, where uh, the Christian uh, model or the Christian parallel was very close, especially in Paris and in Vienna. Right, right, right. It's interesting to me, the university connection, though. I'm going to ask a very, very um, simple question that I, I should have asked a while ago. What exactly is um, the Talmud? Oh, yes, of course. This is, of course, essential for uh, Jewish uh, scholarship since antiquity. Uh, The Talmud is the collection of the oral traditions that were passed on in the uh, rabbinic uh, movement between uh, the times of the destruction of the Temple in 70 uh, CE and the 6th uh, century, that is uh, basically the, the time of uh, late antiquity in which uh, this uh, movement of the rabbinical uh, schools of, uh, of antiquity c- took shape and uh, became uh, influential inside uh, f- 
Jewish society that uh, was not yet rallied around these movements and around the Talmud, but uh, it was uh, one option of uh, various uh, cultural uh, proposals that existed at the time. And uh, these uh, rabbinical schools that were not yet uh, uh, by uh, run by professional uh, scholars, but uh, often by uh, by artisans or uh, by people who had who had other professions, but uh, had their uh, pupils were collected and were put into writing in two uh, huge uh, corpora: the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. By the end of uh, by the end of antiquity. And uh, these uh, corpora became the basis of Jewish uh, religious study from the High Middle Ages uh, onwards, when these uh, texts were uh, distributed and circulated among the Jewish uh, communities uh, of uh, the two uh, two sides of the Mediterranean. From the context that you've you've brought it up in, it, is it about personal behavior and deportment? Well, the Talmud has uh, different contents. It is, a, okay. uh, it is in part a legal book, a, a book of legal uh, discussions on uh, how to govern one's, uh, one's life, one's uh, ritual life, the uh, purity rules that are so important in the practice of the Jewish religion, but also civil law. Okay. And the uh, political self-organization of the community. There are parts that deal with morals, and there are parts that deal uh, with history, with uh, legends, with uh, popular traditions, even with uh, natural sciences and uh, natural knowledge. And uh, in fact, it is a collection of uh, many uh, different uh, uh, walks of, uh, of knowledge of late antiquity that have been uh, put together in a structure that is mainly governed by mnemotechnical devices more than, uh, than than by systematics. In terms of for a rabbi to be to be trained in these new schools that start to open up in the 13th century, what's what sort of training would uh, a rabbi have have to go through um, in in order to be qualified? Well, on the one hand, these uh, Talmudic schools mm-hmm. that in Hebrew are called uh, yeshivot in the plural, yeshiva in the in the singular, okay. where you study the uh, the Talmud are concentrated on uh, one text, on one matter only, which is the uh, Talmudic uh, tradition or the Talmudic corpus. So you study uh, only uh, the Talmud, uh, the Midrash, which is the biblical exegesis, and other rabbinic texts, but nothing outside. You would not study philosophy, uh, and in the uh, you would not read Aristotle or even these books that existed in the in the Middle Ages uh, so already of uh, natural sciences, you would not study this in the yeshiva. You would only uh, study study the Talmud, and the rest might be added by uh, autodidactic uh, procedures. But as I said, the Talmud is so diversified that uh, studying the Talmud does not only mean studying law. It does not only mean studying theology. It's all. It also gives an idea of history. It gives an idea of the the entire human comedy, in fact, because so many different uh, different topics are are in there. How many years would it take to get through one of these um, yeshivas? Is there any range of years? Well, the classic way of doing it was uh, entering a yeshiva after the uh, bar mitzvah, which is the uh, 
religious um, majority, maturity in, in Judaism normally at the age of 13, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, studying the Talmud there without an interruption until uh, uh, the marriage, which ideally in the traditional Jewish society is at the age, age, age uh, 18, but for Talmud, uh, Talmudic students it would be a bit later, then uh, living with one's father-in-law for another few uh, few years and uh, accessing the rabbinical diploma at age uh, 20, 24. So we have there about uh, 10, uh, 11 uh, years of, t- of, of study, 24 uh, semesters of uh, intense uh, study of uh, one corpus that you would need and that, uh, that, that one would need uh, even as an intelligent person to master it all. Continuing on with um, research that you've done, I would like to move on and uh, would like to hear a little bit more about some of the research you've done on um, Hebrew grave inscriptions. Um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about the work you've done on that? Yes, I've been running a research project at uh, Central European University uh, with the title Medieval Hebrew Inscriptions, a European Database, uh, with the observations, uh, with the observation that uh, uh, in many different places in Europe, uh, Hebrew inscriptions from uh, gravestones, but also from uh, synagogue inscriptions and uh, graffiti, uh, have been uh, discovered. You mentioned the case of the the Buddha uh, excavations where inscriptions have come to light. Many of these inscriptions are published by now, but they're published in hundreds and hundreds of different uh, uh, of different organs and uh, books, and um, there is not yet uh, a, s- a perspective that uh, allows us to come to uh, a general idea of what was uh, Hebrew epigraphy, that is Hebrew uh, Inscript the, the art of inscriptions, the literary uh, genre of inscription, in uh, the Middle Ages, in a in a European context, and my idea is that uh, inscriptions were not uh, uh, local traditions, that they communicated between uh, different parts of the diaspora, that there are traditions. Uh, of uh, expressing oneself in inscriptions uh, that uh, come from Italy and that uh, pop up in England or that uh, uh, come from the Orient and that are maintained in uh, uh, in Spain, whereas uh, in other areas there are other traditions coming up that are founded, let's say, in Austria and then spread around to uh, to Germany or uh, to, to Hungary. So uh, the moving and, and, and the... Uh, distribution of these traditions and uh, all of this uh, communication uh, relation, the communication spaces that uh, that we can find behind the lines and uh, by uh, by analyzing uh, formula that might uh, look very uh, uh, very dry and uh, and very well uh, formulaic, uh, all this is uh, is my interest right now. And uh, I try to have an overview as as large as possible through all of the Middle Ages uh, over uh, these uh, these different countries and over, one might say, 4,000 or uh, 5,000 sources that uh, have been found in all these different places of Europe. My goodness. This is really, really interesting. And when when you're talking about traditions, are you talking about rhetorical flourishes that are actually in the inscriptions themselves? Or are you talking about like the uh, calligraphic script, like the the way certain certain characters look? Well, I'm uh, at the moment starting with the 
with the rhetorics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and with the texts. But, uh, of course, the, uh, the, the script and the form of the stones has to be uh, integrated as well, though this was much more local I see. Uh-huh. Than, than the texts themselves. And these uh, European uh, relationships, diaspora relationships with, with, uh, among different places, are uh, much more manifest on the level of the, uh, of the texts. That's why I, that's why I started, uh, started with the texts. That, that, well, that makes, that makes more sense because I'd imagine most of the Hebrew schools might be local, but they'd be sharing a, w- would they be sharing a lot of written material in Hebrew over long distances? In your of course, opinion. of course, there are manuscripts. There are still uh, many manuscripts uh, conserved from the Middle Ages, with their uh, regional styles, with the uh, Spanish or Sephardi style, mm-hmm. the Oriental styles, the uh, German or uh, Ashkenazi styles, etc. So this can be found found on the inscriptions as well. But uh, what is the peculiar uh, advantage of the inscription is that they are so wide, widely spread. There are about uh, 200 places in Europe from where we have inscriptions, and we can indeed see that there are local traditions of uh, commemorating the deceased, and uh, that these local traditions form in turn uh, regional, uh, regional traditions, and that there are communications between them if uh, we look at the formula. Uh-huh. Another advantage of the uh, of the inscription is also that there is not the gender bias that we have in other uh, literary sources of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. where everything is written by and for men. In uh, gravestone inscriptions, we have uh, indeed uh, uh, half or more or less half of the of the sources written, uh, of course, by men, but for women, and uh, celebrating uh, deceased uh, women. So uh, in thi- from this point of view, uh, epigraphy is a genre, a literary genre, that is a bit more, for- more, more fair towards the other half of humanity. How interesting. What sort of things do the, do the gravestones uh, say? Um, anything in particular, or are there general patterns that can be noticed? So on a gravestone, there has to be an inscription. Yes. Otherwise, it might be an idol, and uh, this is forbidden in Judaism. I see. So something has to be written on it. And the essential thing that is written upon a gravestone is the name of the deceased. Mm-hmm. That has to be there. There are a number of gravestones which have only names, but uh, there are others that are more uh, elaborated. There is especially the date. Mm-hmm. The date according to the Jewish calendar, which is important because of the uh, commemoration uh, rituals, the yearly prayers that have, be d- have to be said on, uh, on certain dates. So we have now the, 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 the name and uh, the date, and then there is uh, often a uh, benediction that uh, is about uh, the afterlife of the deceased. And in these benedictions, which are also a formula that spread in different ways in different regions, uh, regions of Europe, we see a reflection of uh, certain theological ideas. And one can ask the question whether uh, thoughts about the afterlife are uh, reflected in uh, the fact that, for example, the Garden of Eden is uh, mentioned in the 13th century, and then in the uh, 14th century another idea 
of uh, of the afterlife, the bundle of life where the souls are are bound up after after death is uh, evoked. So there are certain uh, certain traditions, certain fashions, almost one one can say, of a formula that uh, that that have a theological or religious secret as well that uh, we uh, we should decrypt by uh, comparing these inscriptions to the theological literature of the time and even by comparing them to the uh, to the christian uh, thoughts uh-huh. thought the the thoughts of the environment about the afterlife i just mentioned the purgatory in the 13th century and the famous studies that have done uh, about this so uh, the uh, career of the garden of eden on the on the hebrew inscription might be some sort of a of a jewish uh, jewish echo to this and then there are uh, certain formula of uh, introduction that uh, normally we p- refer to the place where the person is buried and to the stone that has been set that is uh, that realize materialize uh, this this language by pointing to a certain certain place to a certain stone that can be seen and that can be touched and uh, in a, uh, a development that comes uh, from Spain that comes from the uh, uh, Islamic environment in Spain. There's also poetry on gravestones. Oh, okay. This is a tradition that uh, slowly uh, uh, spreads through the diaspora. It comes. It comes from Spain, but only in the 14th century. We can see that also uh, in Germany, in Austria, and in uh, a few uh, very moving documents from present-day uh, Slovakia, then uh, then Hungary. We can see that there are rhymed stones. That there are lamentations about uh, uh, the person that is uh, the, the, the who is buried there with uh, with influences from uh, from biblical poetry but also from different liturgic uh, medieval uh, styles of poetry that can all be found there on the stones how fascinating are there ever any images on the stones or just inscription only well, stones become very lavish in the early modern period. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There are lions and there are birds and uh, there are curtains and uh, they're wonderful at this time, the 16th, uh, 17th, 18th century especially, but uh, the Middle Ages are very sober I see, I in see. different respects. <laughs> the, the Middle Ages are more sober in their formula. Mm-hmm. There are not so many exuberant uh, verses, except for this tradition that I mentioned, and in images uh, as well. There are very, very, very few symbols from time to time. There is a flower or a a butterfly or something of that kind, but uh, there is not this uh, exuberant decoration that one has in the early modern period. From the very, very brief work I've done on I've I've done on gravestones in in Hungary in medieval Hungary, it seemed the tendency was that the the ones that ended up surviving were the really really pretty ones, the really nice looking ones, the very very elite sort of grave monuments. Um, is that the case for the Hebrew inscriptions that survive, or do we see a sort of all sorts of classes and types of people? The, the state of conservation of the Hebrew inscription is very special okay. because, first of all, uh, the the attitude towards cemeteries is very different in Judaism. Cemeteries are holy places, not synagogues are holy places. Cemeteries, there where the where the bodies of the ancestors uh, lie, these are places that that should ideally be kept for eternity until the Messiah comes and the dead will uh, will resurrect. 
So uh, Jewish communities take care not to destroy graves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is a huge difference to, uh, to Christian uh, cemeteries where graves are reused after a certain, certain period of time. The gravestones are uh, discarded or are, are re- reused so that only important people and only, of course, important uh, gravestones and inscriptions will survive. So in uh, the Jewish environment, this is much more uh, democratic. Everybody has the right to stay there for eternity. But, uh, well, the problem is that Christians did not respect these Jewish laws. So uh, after the uh, expulsion of Jewish communities at the end of the Middle Ages, after the the Black Death in the 14th and 15th uh, century, uh, mainly from uh, most places in Western and Central Europe, the cemeteries were destroyed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as uh, Jews took their burials so uh, so seriously and had these, these wonderful stones of a very high quality that they put for their dead, these uh, stones were interesting for masons and for all kinds of uses. So they were used for foundations. They were used, that th- th- they were hewn into different, different other shapes. And uh, most of these stones were found by archaeologists uh, later on in medieval buildings that in the course of time were destroyed. And uh, there are still cases in these, uh, in these days. Uh, dozens of stones have been found in Erfurt uh, in Germany in, uh, medieval, in medieval walls. They took them out and, and there are inscriptions on them. And they come from the Jewish cemetery that had been uh, destroyed uh, in, in the late Middle Ages or in the early modern period and the stones reused. As, as spolia, sort of. As spolia, yes. And so there are stones of all kinds. Uh, there are uh, more uh, quality uh, stones, and there are stones for simple people that have, that have come up for men, for, uh, for women of different times, by, uh, to a large extent, uh, per chance, because there's only a very small part of the inscriptions that we can actually find. Mm-hmm. Find there are sometimes only uh, three or five or ten at, uh, at one place uh, that uh, archaeologists still have discovered. Do any medieval Jewish cemeteries survive in continuous use? Well, there are only two of them, in fact, both of them in Germany. The oldest one is in the city of Worms on the, okay. on the Rhine, which was an important uh, community in the Middle Ages. And uh, their cemetery, uh, by uh, some miracle, still stays there. Hundreds of medieval tombstones still stay there in, in Sito. And uh, very recently, they have all been uh, deciphered and translated into German, and they're now uh, online and can freely be uh, accessed. And the other cemetery is the old cemetery of, uh, of Frankfurt, which also goes back to the 13th century, the oldest inscription that are there. And this is, uh, this is a cemetery that uh, the Nazis have tried to destroy, and a part of it has been destroyed by the Nazis, but uh, fortunately one part of the cemetery has been uh, conserved. So there are few other Jewish cemeteries that have the oldest monuments from the uh, 15th century. I see. So uh, there is the famous cemetery of Prague, yes, which yes. has its uh, oldest monument of the 15th century, and there is the no less famous cemetery of Venice in the Lido, which also has uh, okay. a few stones of the, of the 15th uh, century, but uh, only those two in Germany go back uh, to the High Middle Ages. I see, I see. My last question that I had before we conclude the interview is um, just a very simple one. Uh, 
Uh, what sort of projects are you uh, working on right now or do you plan on working on in the near future? Well, that brings us to another topic because I, I am at least as much an early modernist than I am a medievalist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm working on a, uh, on a period which is uh, quite uh, different than that I have been talking about uh, because in the early modern period uh, we have... Uh, differences of communities which are more clear-cut than in the Middle Ages because Jews have their own uh, languages. They speak Yiddish among the Poles and they speak uh, Ladino, which is Jewish uh, Spanish, among, uh, among the Turks and, uh, and the Greeks. So uh, that uh, the difference of communities is, uh, is much more clear-cut. So in this situation, there were always groups that have crossed the lines, that have crossed the borders between these, uh, these communities that uh, define each other more than ever by their differences. And one of these groups were uh, people who at the end of the Middle Ages, uh, Jews who were forced to convert to uh, Christianity in Spain and Portugal, uh, who were uh, in the course of time uh, persecuted by the Inquisition for secret uh, Judaic uh, practices, then uh, emigrated from Spain and Portugal to uh, different places in the Mediterranean and uh, later on uh, on the Atlantic coast in Northern Europe and, uh, one can say metaphorically, came back to Judaism. But for them, as persons, of course, it was a complete new discovery of a, of a religion that they embraced as uh, their own. And I am interested in, in how they got used to this uh, old, uh, new uh, religion, leaving behind their Christian uh, education, and especially writing texts about the difference of uh, Judaism and Christianity and why Christianity is better than Judaism. Okay the other way around, why Judaism is better than Christianity. So confronting this uh, uh, anti-Jewish uh, writing mm -hmm. that uh, you have among the Christians. And uh, I'm particularly interested in this literature because from there emerged the tradition, the uh, very important tradition today in, uh, in, in the Jewish religion of writing religious works in everyday language, in European languages, not in Hebrew, not in Yiddish, not in Ladino, but at the time in Spanish and in Portuguese. I see. And I'm about to, to edit uh, uh, one text, which is about the first uh, text that has been uh, written about the Jewish religion in uh, a European language, Spanish in this, uh, in this case, which uh, has been written about 1580 by an anonymous author that I've tried to identify in the Moroccan city of Marrakesh. And it is a dialogue between a Jew and, uh, and a Christian about their respective religion, which, uh, of course, the Jew wins in the end, and uh, which uh, reflects uh, uh, lots of different uh, cultural facts of the Renaissance, which has all the Renaissance Reformation background of the author who has, been, who has grown up as uh, a Christian, but defends Judaism with his tools that he has, a few uh, readings uh, from the Talmud, putting it all together in, an, in a real intercultural uh, adventure. And uh, the result is this, uh, this Spanish book that I'm about to edit. Very fascinating. Well, we look forward to it when it comes out. What can I say? It's been, it's been a very interesting discussion, and we, we thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me.
Alrighty, and for the folks back at home, um, be sure to visit us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Uh, be sure to send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu, and be sure to like us on Facebook as well. We thank you very much for having